Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. How are you all? I hope you enjoyed the last episode and I'm back with an exciting new one. 14-year-old David is going mental right now. If you're late David at the age of 14 and spent half of your night behind a screen playing Call of Duty, then this episode is for you. Today, my guest is Marky B. Cod, aka Mark Braceland. Mark is the head coach of the LA Gorillas, a professional Call of Duty team. He's also an ex-professional esports gamer playing Call of Duty at the biggest levels. In this episode, we deep dive into the pulse-pounding world of Call of Duty as we unravel the exhilarating journey of champions who rose from their living rooms to the global stages. From dopamine-fueled victories to coaching magic, prepare for a wild episode. We uncover the truth behind the dopamine surge that turns gamers into unstoppable forces. We also understand... Did their screen time obsession predict their esports destiny, or does sitting in front of games make kids more violent? I asked Mark this question in the episode. We also peek into the lives of pro gamers as they balance practice, passion, and real life commitments. We unveil the secret to gaming longevity from blue light to dopamine, sleep to success, hypnotism to Wim Hof. We find out if Love and well-being exists during shooter chaos. And lastly, we find out the unexpected truth. What are the mental performance tactics and genetics that top-tier gamers need to turn into world champions who earn hundreds of thousands of pounds taking real-life self-development tools into the warfare world? And can you use them too? And funnily enough, we end the podcast whilst I ask Mark what his best online slagging has been whilst playing Xbox Live. This is a really fun and different episode and it has so much utility so I hope you stick around, share it into a group chat, share it with your work colleagues and give me some feedback and if you'd also want to donate to this podcast you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash development by David. And before we get into this episode I want to thank the brand new sponsor Two Birds Drinks. An incredible and exciting brand coming at the heart of Glasgow. Two Birds aims to provide you with your caffeine intake and all the vitamins that you need in one ready to drink can. Supplying from their Two Birds Fitness Boutique Gym in Glasgow, you can get your hands on iced coffee and iced green tea elixirs at 15% off by using my code D at checkout at twobirdsdrinks.co.uk. That's D by D for 15% off at twobirdsdrinks.co.uk. Get your hands on such a happy, healthy, well-being brand, again, from the heart of Glasgow. Thank you, Two Birds, for sponsoring this episode. And our second sponsor is the amazing David Galbraith, one of my previous guests, and his M23 mental performance. If you want to optimize your performance for prolonged states of concentration, focus, mindfulness, and motivation, or you're just an all-round high performer and want to take it to the next level by gaining advantage over your competition, get in contact with M23 Mental Performance Coaching, This type of coaching is dedicated to help people achieve explosive mental performance gains. They specialize in techniques that activate a deep focused state and help you to perform and optimize habits that will help you reach your peak performance. No matter where you work and what you do, they use cutting edge science and technology to craft solutions that are tailored to each individual's needs. With their help, you can unlock your inner potential and reach your highest level of peak performance. Head along to M23 Mental Performance and Mary Hill, ask for David Gilbraith. You can do this one-to-one in group settings or online. Again, reach out to David Gilbraith at M23 Mental Performance and New Life Gym, Mary Hill. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. And now the amazing Marky B. God. Mark Braceland, welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you, mate? 
I'm good, man. Um, just working away in the off season right now, and uh, kind of just enjoying my time to myself because usually I'm quite a busy man. But right now I've got a lot of free time, so enjoy myself. That's why I'm here today to talk to you. Awesome! I can't wait to to get into that busy schedule. Can you tell me where you're dialing in from just now? Yeah, I'm currently back in Glasgow. Um, I've been away living in Los Angeles for the last nine months, but uh, it's the off season now, so I typically use this time to come home and spend time with my friends and family and whatnot. So, because um, we're obviously working in terms of, um, I mean, we'll get into that what I do exactly. I'm sure down the line, but the way my work is, it's uh, very seasonal, like a, a traditional sports. Uh, season so uh, during like a three four month period we can have a bit of downtime we still have preparation going on for next year but we obviously have more time to ourselves and whatnot and working on it ourselves i feel like we're already teasing the listener of what you do who you are so if i were to ask who is mark braceland today in 2023 how would you bring that to life mate um yeah i'm mark braceland and i'm the head coach of the la gorillas who are in the call of duty league uh, I've been doing this for quite some time now at this point, but uh, most recently last year moved over to Los Angeles Gorillas, uh, and I've been there for a year. So now going into my second year with them, so that's me in twenty twenty three. Awesome. Let's take it back to the beginning. Where or when did you pick up gaming? What was your first console? What was your first game? Do you remember picking it up for the first time? Yeah, no, I definitely do. Um, still quite a vivid memory of mine. Uh, I think the very first thing I ever played was Pokemon, um, and I can still remember playing it on the old Game Boy, like the old grey one, um, the original, and I think that that's kind of what got me right into it, and then growing up, obviously playing a bunch of different things, uh, you know, FIFA with my friends, games like Halo, um, and all that sort of stuff, then eventually getting into Call of Duty, um, but that's kind of where I got started, um, is just kind of playing those more like casual games, I guess you could say, uh, growing up, and Obviously, that's kind of where I got hooked. Do you remember at what point it became uh, more prominent in your life where you were spending more time behind the screen than in front of the console? Um, hmm. I think it was probably around like 2011, 2012, around that period of time is when I first like started getting into the you know truly competitive stuff uh, and like attending events and all those sort of things and spending a lot more time playing and practicing. Before that, it was more so like I was in school, so it was sort of, you know, in the evenings and whatnot, um, a couple hours here and there. But then around that time is kind of where I, I made it like more of a full-time thing. Um, so since then, I've been kind of going strong, so it's quite a while now. I've been doing this almost half my life at this point. So, uh, yeah, it's been quite some time. I don't mean to ask such a silly and juvenile question, but some of the listeners might not be familiar with it at all, which I'll be surprised about. But if you were to bring to life what is Call of Duty in a nutshell, how would you describe it? Yeah, um, I mean, the game Call of Duty is obviously like a kind of military simulator shooter kind of thing. And uh, it's obviously nothing like real life. But uh, <laughs> when I first got into Call of Duty, it was on Call of Duty Modern Warfare uh, 4. Uh, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, sorry. And uh, that was obviously kind of based on current times, but recent Call of Duty titles you've got, you know, futuristic, where they're kind of inventing what's going on in the future and potentially what, like, that advanced warfare is going to look like. Um, and then, obviously, you've got the kind of older-style games where you've got like, the World War II-themed ones, etc. But it's all kind of the same. Uh, you're playing against other people across the world um, and obviously trying to 
win matches. A quick question on how the kind of plot and storyline of Call of Duty has changed over the years. Do you think it's been a deliberate move to move between like modern warfare that reflects events that are going on in the news, perhaps, or have just went by in the news, and a transition towards advanced warfare in order to not glamorize and fetishize warfare or army or military or conflict? Do you think that's been a deliberate deliberate move, or do you, th- do you think it's uh, just uh, just natural advancements of the game? I don't that. think it's a deliberate move to, uh, for that reason. I think it's more so that they release a new Call of Duty game every year, and if they were releasing a current generation of what you know military is like every single year, I think that the sales would obviously drop. They're constantly trying to like change up the the kind of landscape of where the game is set, um, just to keep things fresh. So you'll never really see kind of back to back Call of Duty games that are typically from the same era, but. Um, the new Call of Duty has been announced, Modern Warfare 3, so we're actually getting that this year. So, uh, typically, they like to change up the kind of time zone, not time zone, time frame that it's based in every now and then. Uh, but this year, they're kind of going back to back with the same thing. I don't want to get into this question already, but I think it's a fitting time to ask it. Do you think, like, I, I, I was doing some like light browsing on the internet before. Uh, starting this podcast and I googled something like what effects do Call of Duty have on kids and it was like reduced social skills um, high proclivity to be violent um, easily distracted but then I look at you and I'm sure we'll get into like how illustrious and crazy your career has been and how rewarding it has been do you think some of those grand sweeping statements on the internet are true? Uh, Definitely not I think that um, you know some of the people I've met through these, you know, college competitions that I've been going to, like I said, since 2011, I've not really met anyone that's particularly violent. Um, I've, you know, I think that that's one of those things that's like, it's obviously a very controversial topic, but I think that at the end of the day, there's so many million people that play Call of Duty as a game, and just by the numbers, there's probably going to be one or two people there that are not really right him and i think that those are the ones that are typically you know gonna maybe fall more into the the violent side of things but personally for me i don't think that that's been a behavior that i've seen being displayed by you know a lot of my peers and people that i've you know met throughout the years of which is thousands of people um of course and i think that at the end of the day that's just one of those things that there's always going to be every generation there's always something that gets blamed for violence whatnot i mean during the you know 80s 90s i'm sure it was like rock music uh, and things like that and there's always just a new thing to blame so for me i think that it's um it's on everyone else to be honest to actually take accountability for their own actions and i think that a lot of the time it's just down to the individual themselves rather than the game um i don't think people are playing call of duty and going oh i want to go into war now um <laughs> i don't think that's the reality oh me neither mate and i think it's an interesting point because if I was to look at football, for example, I could imagine per hundred thousand there there are way way more violent football fans or football footballers than there is college duty players per hundred thousand. Um, yet you've never heard football be described as a driver for violence or playing football as a driver for violence. I think these grand sweeping generalizations have been pointed towards Call of Duty just because there is guns in it and there is 
death in it and there's explosions in it it just yeah. seems like the easiest thing to target to but like i said i think there are probably way more violent people playing football than there are playing Call of Duty. yeah and like you witness these things in films too um there's obviously very graphic things that happen in a lot of films nowadays um and it doesn't you know make you want to kind of take up that life that you've you're, you're it's an art form at the end of the day and it's something that you enjoy it's not more so something that you want to do uh in your spare time so when did call of duty as a singular game really stick for you opposed to playing fifa or super yeah. smash bros for example why call of duty and when around uh, 2008 2009 i'd say uh, that was I, I remember call of duty games by the year i'm a bit of a nerd but um around call of duty 4 and call of duty world at war which were the two games back to back uh, that's kind of really when I got right into it, playing with my friends from school. We'd all uh, be playing in sort of like online competitive matches and stuff like that. Uh, and that really was what propelled me into where I am today. But uh, that's really when we got into it. And we'd go into school Monday to Friday and then it would be like, oh, see you online at five o'clock and we'll get into some COD. Um, and then during the day at lunchtime and all that, we'd be talking about our matches from the night before. They were quite sweaty. Um, so... Yeah, I think those are the times I kind of like got right into it and, and like I said, with my friends. And at that time, some of them were actually better than me. Just, just so happened that a lot of them along the way kind of gave up with it. Uh, but for whatever reason, I just decided to stick in at it and um, obviously it worked out in the end. But it wasn't uh, without some trials and tribulations throughout it. What was the transformation from hobby to professional? Like, um, what's the kind of roadmap for something like that? The only kind of sport I can compare it to is football, whereby you'd be playing a game, they'd be a scout, and they'd sign you up for Man United juniors or Celtic juniors, um, and you start going and training with those boys. Is it a same kind of environment for Call of Duty, or is it very different? It's changed a lot since when I first got back into it, or when I first got into it, sorry. I think that at the time, you could attend events when you were like under 18 and stuff like that, because they weren't sanctioned uh, by Activision themselves, so you'd have to sign like you'd have to get your parents to sign like a permission slip type thing um when you were under 18 uh, but you didn't have to nowadays you can't compete at these tournaments until you're 18 years old uh, because it goes off of the rating of the game itself uh, so it's changed a lot since my time in my day like when i first got into it it was very much like everyone even the best players in the world and the lowest level of players all played on a website called gamebattles.com so you could be playing with your mates and then match up against the best player in the world. Uh, nowadays, it's not as accessible as that, to be honest with you. You can't, nowadays, it's all the professional teams like practicing against one another and stuff like that. So it's harder for a young player now to get noticed, especially being under 18. You're not really getting those opportunities. Uh, but nowadays, I'd say the, the kind of best roadmap I'd give uh, for competing in these online competitions is obviously just when you're at the underage of 18, just playing COD with your friends and just enjoying it. Um, and I think that that's the, the the most important thing at the end of the day. I think that when you enjoy something, you put a lot of time into it. It's, it's natural that you're just going to improve and improve through time. And then when that opportunity arises, when you turn 18, then you can start going to all these different competitions, entering the online competitions, which are kind of like, I guess, the step one. You don't, you don't just kind of turn 18 and then just start going to events straight away. It's most of the time you're competing in a lot of these online competitions on the same website, GameBattles.com, that I mentioned, which has been about since, like, 2004 or something. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where you start. You progress from there. You start getting sort of 
improved teammates. You kind of moved yourself up the ladder uh, and then you start attending events. Right now, the way the COD ecosystem works is there's the Call of Duty League itself and then beneath that is almost like the championship, which is called Challengers. So the COD League is the top 12 teams. That's the franchise league. You have to pay to get in it. Challengers, there's no like barrier for entry in terms of like having to pay to get in or anything like that. So Challengers is like where you just, if you have this uh, console or a PC or whatever, and you've got a team, you can play and compete in challengers and try and progress up the rankings. It's like a big leaderboard. You get placements based on essentially like where you place in these different competitions. So you'll get uh, things called pro points, which essentially you know put you up the ladder uh, and allow you to qualify for the big tournaments. Because even in challengers, you have like a world championship at the end of the year, which is worth quite a lot of money as well. It's I think like uh, two hundred and fifty to half a million prize pool for the amateur uh, challengers and then there's nice. different tournaments throughout the year that obviously you can get into the winning prize money there as well so there's ample opportunity um the, the unfortunate thing is there's only 12 teams in the league uh, only four players in each team so you know 48 players total so even making it to the top of challengers you're within like the top 100 players in the world uh which is still quite a considerable achievement considering the amount of you know, millions of people that play Call of Duty. So for me, I think that that's the kind of roadmap I'd give. But again, it's a little more complicated now than it was back in when I first started getting into it because I could just play against the best players in the world like straight away. And obviously that gives you an opportunity to improve at a faster rate. If you could just go play football with Messi every day, I'm sure you'd become class. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I think that that's what's different nowadays. Unfortunately, the laws in terms of... Uh, the ratings of the games and whatnot are just kind of hard to get by. What's your overall opinion on that? Because I can imagine if you are like a 14, 15 year old, 16 year old prodigy who is destined to play at the big leagues, just phenomenal potential, phenomenal talent uh, and phenomenal aptitude. By the time you get to 18, like most young men and young people's kind of sliding door moments are at that age where they're choosing like what trade do I pick, what university do I yeah. pick, do I go to college? And they're probably more pressurized at that age to make a sensible decision. Sorry, an, an inverted commas, sensible decision. Um, so I can imagine they're kind of more paralyzed by that choice. Whereas if you're 14 and 15 and you are almost one of the best in the world, your parents are going to probably be a bit more supportive, perhaps, for you to go down that route. So do you think there's a lot of wasted talent because we're waiting to like the age of 18 to, to fully accept that talent into the competitions? Oh yeah, 100%. And like like I said, before they brought in the kind of 18-year-old rule when you used to have, there were some players that were, you know, finishing top three events that were like 14, 15. Um, there, there is a lot of young talent at that age. It's un just unfortunate. But yeah, 100%, I agree that there's a lot of missing talent out there. And you, like you said, it's a very tough situation when you're 18 years old and you, ha and you could be going to, you know, university, college, whatever that may be at that age. Um, finishing high school, you know what I mean? It's it's a very weird age to kind of have to wait for. Uh, like I said, when I got into it, I was, I think my first event, I was 16, maybe 17. So, like, I had a few years of where I was still in school and stuff like that, where I could actually still, like, get to a point where I felt comfortable making that decision. Uh, whereas now, unless you're, you know, that next up prodigy, like you're the top three 17-year-olds, you're really not getting that many opportunities. And speaking from experience of this as well, uh, we had a player that had just turned 18 in our uh, team last year, and he ended up being unbelievable. And I think that he was one of those ones that was like, 
at the age of 14 to 18 was maybe not in any competitions, but was getting opportunities in like practice sessions. If a, a top team like was missing out on a player uh, for that one particular reason, uh, he would kind of slide in there and help out, be like more of like a pickup type player. Uh, and that gave him opportunities when it came down to turning 18. And then he was in one of the top challengers teams in our academy team. Uh, and they won the very first tournament he attended. So his very first event he's ever attended, he won it. And then we brought him into our starting roster right after that. So obviously there are kind of dreamboat scenarios where it can work out well for you. But at the end of the day, for most of the players that are coming into the league now, a lot of them kind of need to wait until they're like 19, 20 before they actually get the opportunity because they need to be you know, 18 before they can compete in challengers. And then usually they need like a year, maybe two years in challengers before one of these pro teams actually takes um, the gamble on them. It's ridiculous, mate, considering that despite the age rating being 18 plus, for example, kids are still going to play the game. The, yeah. the same amount of kids are, are always going to be playing playing those games. And it's just such a wasted um, pool of, of talent and potential. One thing that I was smiling at there, I just an of thought that I had is, I'm not sure if you've ever been down the boozer with your mates, right? And you speak to one of the lads and they're like, yeah, I played for Celtic Youth. I could have went pro, but I snapped my knee, for example. And you know you're they're talking bullshit. I wonder how <laughs> many people are using that 18 rule to, and saying, oh, I could have went pro at COD, but I had, I had to wait till I was 18, so I never turned pro. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. There's definitely a lot of people that, that there are in that situation, really realistically. I think that... Um, it's one of those ones as well. Like it could be dependent on your individual situation. If you are maybe in a, in a comfortable, you know, you're 18 years old. Maybe there's obviously people that come from a lot of money and things like that. They might be more comfortable to make a decision to like, you know, maybe take a year off school or something along those lines to commit to doing it full time. But again, for a lot of these uh, young people, it's kind of a, and I'd even say that's myself, not a really sensible decision. It's a complete gamble. So I think that it's one of those things that's. Uh, it's hard, it is hard, but it's just unfortunately the rules we play with. What was your transition after school? What did you do when she left? Uh, so I, I, I kind of left school um, and moved straight into being a pro college duty player. I got, I got offered like a professional contract to be paid uh, right when I turned 18 or maybe just before that. Um, so for me, it was kind of like a straight t- transition from, I never done like any secondary education at all. So for me, it was kind of like transitioning from uh, high school straight into being a college professional um, and then obviously college coach now so it's been quite a long period of time I've been doing this for at this stage over over 10 years professionally your mates must have been so jealous imagine leaving school into like becoming a, a mechanic or a joiner or like I'm not, I'm not lambasting these trades like all my best mates oh, yeah. have them but they're going out in the, the pissing rain and you're like yeah I'm leaving to go play college full time they must have been raging at you yeah, no, for sure. I'm definitely like blessed in that regard. Uh, I think there's pros and cons. Like at the end of the day, like you said, um, some people would prefer not to be spending six, seven days a week just on a PC twenty four seven. So I think it's obviously on the individual themselves and what they want from life. But uh, for me, I think that obviously I feel very blessed to be able to do this because it's something I'm obviously very passionate about. Uh, so for me, um, obviously, I feel fantastic. And of course, that doesn't discredit what you're doing. Like, it's not like you were just playing games for fun. Like eight hours a day, you were still working. You were still like having yeah. to put in a graft, a very different graft, but still a graft. And like you said, you were behind a screen eight hours a day. 
and where perhaps some of your mates who do have trades are out and about socializing in person with people whereas you're like having to like train and perform a high caliber behind the screen every single day so perhaps like you said they wouldn't actually have traded their own life for years yeah no I, th- I definitely think that a lot of people would but at the end of the day i think that there was obviously a lot of sacrifices along the way that a lot of people don't see um the likes of you know not getting to socialize as much on weekends because a lot of these competitions would take place on the weekends so uh saturdays and sundays and stuff would i would usually be quite busy so it meant that obviously when you turn 18 that people are you know sort of doing things throughout the week so for me uh not being able to socialize did kind of suck a lot but uh you know whenever i did get the opportunity to i was definitely out there and and you know doing things with my friends that's one thing I've definitely made a conscious effort of doing throughout the entirety of my career. And I think that that's one thing that a lot of players don't do, even in the pro level now, is like take a step away from it. And uh, when you do have that free time, make sure you use it. Uh, you need a bit of like work-life balance at the end of the day. Uh, and I think that's one of the big issues with burnout and stuff like that that you get in the college duty scene where you have these guys that are play, you know, waking up, getting on the game, going to sleep, waking up, doing the same thing every single day. Um, and obviously some of them are becoming phenomenal Call of Duty players from it but at the same time some of them are going down the opposite route where it's making them worse and worse so it's about just knowing yourself uh, what you need as an individual to, to succeed and I've worked with a variety of different players uh, you know as my time at coaching and playing and there's there's some guys that do need to put in a lot of time to be at their very best but then there's some guys that think they do because they see that other guy doing that and then they commit in that amount of time and it's actually making them a worse of a player. Uh, so it's very important that these guys sort of recognise for themselves what they need to be at their very best. And, and some guys need to take some time away from it and actually just work on themselves outside of that. You kind of touched on there around what ingredients make a college player a good college player. If I were to ask you what skills, attitudes and aptitudes does a professional college player need, how would you answer that? Um, I'd say... Number one is probably communication. Um, it's a team game that's four versus four, so being able to communicate effectively with your teammates is incredibly important. Uh, number two is discipline. I think that obviously uh, you've got to be, you know, we come up with these game plans and strategies to win games. And if you maybe go off the plan, if you're, you know, doing your own thing, sometimes you can, don't get me wrong, sometimes these players can, you know, win you a game at the same time, maybe going a little bit off the the beaten path but uh, a lot of the time you got to stick to what you know and, and just try and work as a team to, to secure victories so I think discipline's a big part of it as well um, I mean outside of that I think that obviously you know you've got the, these players that are just got this incredible individual ability and uh, and a lot of that comes down to pure intelligence and, and obviously uh, just putting in a good amount of time into the game uh, you see these sort of flashy players that can make, you know, situations unfold where maybe their team's about to lose a game and they and they do something crazy and win their team a game. I think that that's obviously a big part of it too. Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a bunch of different variables that I think come into the sort of complete picture of a Call of Duty player. But I think that each player as well plays their own role, so you don't ne- necessarily have to all have each skill, if that makes sense. I think as long as your team as a collective has the right mixture of players, the right mixture of personalities, I think your team's going
What I like about that is that it almost mirrors, for example, the closest thing that some of the listeners might relate to is football. Like you wouldn't want like eleven strikers on the pitch or eleven goalkeepers on the pitch. You, like you said, you need this hybrid approach of different positions doing different things with different roles and responsibilities, with ultimately different personalities. I really like that. Much like sports or athleticism, do you get any like genetic freaks in esports? For example, in basketball, someone who's incredibly tall or someone in boxing with a really long wingspan who's got a really good reach. Do you have the same in esports? Like, I don't know, really good vision or really good, I don't know, like the size and shape of their thumbs? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it's more so from like a physical perspective, but there's definitely players that like, you know, you have the players that are incredibly intelligent, the players that are great at communicating, the players who are just individually uh extremely talented to the point where maybe their other skills like communication and and all these other factors are at a lower level than a lot of the players but they make up for it somewhere else uh so i wouldn't really say from like a physical perspective but i'd definitely say from like a player archetype perspective um and that's just going back into like the last thing i said as well about like different roles in college there is multiple different roles and like different sort of players need to play these specific roles so you have like a, a Mary R player who's the kind of like backbone of the team and he's usually going to be like, like like the vocal leader in the squad and then you have like a flex player who's like it makes sense flexible so <laughs> um he's kind of doing both roles where he maybe uh, pull he can play really fast at some stages but then it also slows down to more of the pace of the the main AR player then you have the two SMG players who kind of work in tandem where they are uh, maybe one of them's doing the the dirty work if you've played college and maybe he's the guy that's getting on the objective uh while the other guys focus more on like controlling the map and getting the kills in front of him to allow your team to rack up points to win um for people that haven't played college you probably have no idea what i'm talking about but um for those who have you will know exactly what i'm talking about um so yeah it's there's obviously different uh, skill sets for different players and and different roles what was your role mate I was a main AR player, so I was like the the vocal backline for the team. I'm going to be the guy that's uh, shouting communication, allowing the maybe the flex player to like take more of a back seat on that, but focus more on you know getting kills on the map and stuff like that, uh, which is obviously key to success. You need, like I said, a well balanced team. So for me, I'd do a lot of the dirty work. I'd be kind of the guy sitting on the objective a lot of the time. Uh, and you know, just trying to make my team win. I was the kind of guy that filled in the gaps and just did whatever it takes to win. Do you remember what your first pay was like from playing Call of Duty? Um, yeah, my first pro event, I came second and I won two and a half grand, I think. But the prize money's changed a lot since those days. Uh, but yeah, my first pro event, I won two and a half grand. Uh, after How much would that, that be now? If you win events now, it's like if you win an event now, you uh, it's fifty grand each, I think. Yeah, fifty grand each. Uh, that's just for a standard event, and the world championships, like it's it varies year on year, but it's it's went from like two hundred to four hundred thousand per player, uh, depend on the year. And there's been different sort of prize winnings for world championships over the years. How old were you when you? Got that second place. Uh, eighteen. Yeah, I just came back off my sixth year holiday. I was in Malia, uh, <laughs> and I went. I went straight to the um, to tournament the next weekend, 
and uh, and came second. We actually could have won. It would have been five grand, which would have been better. But um, we actually threw the final, believe it or not. So uh, it was definitely your fault for being in Mali the week before. <laughs> I played unbelievable. It was one of my best events, funnily enough. My very first event as a pro player was one of my best uh, to this day. I mean, obviously to this day, I'm not a player anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a fun time, obviously. Uh, I had a great tan at the event, put it that way. <laughs> Mate, that's mental. That must have been such like a good business case or use case to go to your parents, to go to like the career advisors at school, to go to the people around you being like, yeah, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just played one tournament and I've got two and a half grand. That's taking you a whole month to make. Did you ever use that? credibility almost or financial credibility to prove your your uh, career decision um not really to like anyone apart from my family you know uh just to kind of justify it to them i'd say that from i didn't really care about what anyone else thought you know <laughs> to be honest with you uh so for me it was more so just from my family's perspective for sure and you and winning that money at my very first event allowed me to to do a lot of other things so like around that time i bought a pc so i could start streaming on twitch earning more money there so it was like i won money but i reinvested into myself to then actually make more money um at that age so that was a smart decision for me obviously at the time my mate who is also an ex-professional call of duty player asked me to ask about tcm marky b ben q what does that mean <laughs> that was just our gamer tag um back around uh, those times that I'm talking about, kind of when I first won my first event, I was a team called TCM, and we were sponsored by the monitor company called BenQ. So, um, yeah, um, funnily enough, actually, we didn't even get BenQs from the company; but they just paid our salaries essentially uh, to TCM, which they then paid into our bank accounts. But uh, at the time, we were, it was as if we were obviously sponsored by a monitor company, which we were, but we just had them on our jerseys and stuff. We didn't actually get free monitors. <laughs> funny story but yeah so tell me about the career progression after that like how did you go from winning two and a half grand to yeah playing in some of the biggest teams in the biggest league uh in the world um well yeah from that point i just kind of remained around the top in europe for quite some time where like i won about i think it's seven or eight european titles uh obviously around those times the prize money wasn't as big but Still was obviously able to like live off of it and whatnot. Still living at home, um, and I was winning a lot of online tournaments as well. So I was around the like you know in the top one or two teams in Europe for probably like five years, um, and then around 2017, 2018, I started to have a little bit of a fall off. I'd say uh, not individually, just my results weren't coming. Um, wasn't doing as well. Didn't qualify for the Pro League in 2018 because at this stage it wasn't like a franchise league where you had to, to pay to get in. Uh, it was two seasons where you had to qualify through like a kind of almost like what they have in the championship to the um, SPL now where you have to like play that playoff kind of match where you play against a team that was already in the league. And both seasons that year, I lost in the very final match to qualify. So I think that for me that was like a point where I wasn't obviously earning as much money because I wasn't winning tournaments, wasn't doing as well. So that's when I made the decision in 2018 to make the transition to becoming a coach because I'd heard rumours about the Franchise League coming in uh, and I joined a team that already had... So to explain things deeper, Activision has two games that they have Franchise Leagues win. They have Call of Duty, then they have Overwatch. 
Overwatch League started prior to the Call of Duty League. So in 2018, the Overwatch League had already started. And the company that I had an opportunity to coach with had an Overwatch League team, which basically implied that we were also going to be joining the Call of Duty League. So for me, it made it was a sensible choice to join them. Even though there was another team that was offering me more money and were actually a better team at the time. Uh, I joined the team that I obviously knew had a better sort of career progression with. And that was a company called Splice, uh, who owned the Toronto Ultra Spot eventually. Uh, and then that's where I moved to Toronto in 2019, uh, towards the end of it. So was in Toronto for three years, four years? Yeah, four years. Um, until, no, sorry. Wait, I'm, my math's off. Three years. I was in Toronto for three years, um, living there, and then eventually moved to Los Angeles last year. So um, I've been, obviously, doing competing for a number of years and then since 2018 I've been a coach so last five years been coaching. Before we touch on your coaching career what was the pinnacle or kind of highest point that you got to with uh, your playing career? Uh, yeah I mean I got I never won like a major like international event like I said I won like seven eight European tournaments I got to the finals of a bunch of international tournaments unfortunately I wasn't able to get over the line so I didn't win anyone uh, but I'd say that's probably the pinnacle. For me, I think getting second at an international event is more impressive than winning a European event because most of the time, especially uh, in my sort of t career, the American teams were dominating um, the European teams a lot of the time. Uh, I was actually a part... No EU team had placed above top eight at a tournament uh, going into 2013, 2014 times. And I was part of the team that broke that sort of curse, it was called at the time. Uh, and progress forward to top three nowadays obviously there's a lot of european players in the league and there's a lot more success from european players you've had a bunch of different teams from europe that have won different tournaments so uh the i'd like to think that i've helped pave the way for those people uh, but again not taking any credit away for them because they were definitely far better than me uh to be honest with you so would you reckon that you're a better coach than your player or because you've been such a good player um, allowed you to be such a good coach or even better coach i don't know it's hard to judge it's like you can't it's hard to compare they're two different things completely um i'd say i've had more success as a coach just you know from winning standpoint you know i've, I've won a couple of international events as a coach so in comparison to as a player obviously i never won an international event so i'd definitely say you know results wise i've definitely done better as a coach I was so na naive when researching this kind of esports and Call of Duty world. I was so naive to think that um, a team would have a coach. I thought it was just like how you'd play at home. There'd be four guys or four guys or four girls and you'd all play together just like you would at home. I didn't realize it'd be like a managerial figure that would kind of coordinate the team or be like a reporting line for the team. Like what are your main roles and responsibilities as a coach? Yeah, um, before I go into that, I'm just going to give you a bit more context. So there's not only just me um, within, like, you know, the company uh, that I work for, which is Tronky Sports Entertainment. Um, so, like, my boss is, you know, Stan Kroenke up there somewhere, um, who obviously owns Arsenal, LA Rams and the NFL, Denver Nuggets and the NBA. So there's a lot of different positions between between him and, you know, me. There's We've got a general manager, we've got, alongside me, I have a data analyst, an assistant coach, and, and all these sort of things. So, like, it's not just it's not just me and, and four players. There's And then 
you obviously have from the business side, you have like marketing teams, um, you know, you have like the people who create content and all these sort of things. So there's there's a lot of staff. Uh, you know, the last two companies I've worked for have probably had between 15 and 80, uh, 80 staff at different times. Um, what? So, yeah, so there's there's definitely a lot of more pieces involved. But yeah, in terms of roles and responsibilities, um, I'll start from the, kind of the off-season period. So in the off-season, it's more so like preparing for the next year, signing players like you would in a football management situation. It's kind of like the transfer window right now where you have, you know, your you know players are getting bought and sold by other franchises. You're dealing with contracts and all these sort of things and putting the pieces together with those roles that I was talking about earlier in terms of like the different positions in the team and you're obviously mapping it all out um, and then once you obviously have all that figured out you have to you know sort of set expectations for the team going into the year and then the season starts when the game comes out so when the new Call of Duty game comes out I think it's November 11th then there'll probably be a couple days around that time where the players kind of just get to grips with the game you're not really going in day one and being like, right, let's get a practice session going. It's more so, obviously, unlike traditional sports where it's just the same game they're playing throughout their entire careers. Call of Duty changes year by year, and although it's very similar each year, there's obviously some slight differences. So the first couple of days to a week of the game are like just everyone getting to grips with it and essentially just playing the game. And that'll be what I'll be doing as well, of course, just trying to get a leg up on your competition, trying to figure out the little nuances of the game ahead of other people so that when the league starts you have a like slight advantage um, and then in terms of like practice sessions and whatnot the way my sort of daily routine would work would be we'd usually come into the facility because we have like a facility out in Los Angeles that we all play from together uh, usually you'd I'd come into the facility about nine half nine in the morning um, and then we'd have Depending on the day, it would be between an hour and 30, 30 minutes to an hour of like video review and the like setting sort of goals we have for that day. Uh, and because obviously we're playing a variety, of, if you've never played Call of Duty before, you're playing a variety of different maps and, and game mode combinations. So you kind of need to like have a game plan of something you want to improve on each of those so that when you're doing it in practice, you obviously have some goals to work off of. Um, and then after practice, which is usually around six hours then we'll usually have some sort of small board review it's usually looking at ind more individual stuff the start of the day i'd say is more focused on like team um sort of board review and then you know i'll work more one-to-one -one with the players after practice what's uh, a board review so a board review is essentially like uh watching back the the matches you've played so say you say you've just played on 90 minutes of football after it or maybe the next morning, a manager might have the players come in and, being like, and pointing out different mistakes or pointing out things that they did really well. It's it's very much similar to that, uh, where you're kind of just reviewing the the sort of game you've played prior or practice session or whatever that may be. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. I didn't realise how like detailed and strategic this was. Like I've just been so naive to the whole industry because I've like I don't know what I don't know. And now like learning from yeah. you, I realise how like intricate it is. Given that you said that communication was such a huge component of what makes a team successful and what makes a good Call of Duty player successful. Given that now that you're in Scotland, I know it's temp temporary, how important is it for you to spend over the shoulder time and team bonding time with your team, not only 
in practice playing games, but also out with the the environment of gaming, out with the facility. Much like how if you work for an organization, you work in a, a corporate world in a nine to five, there may be a social event in the evening or you made a gym class together or something like that. How important is that for uh, yeah, playtime? I'm glad you asked that because I actually failed to mention how important that is because that's, you know, a big part of my philosophy as a coach is actually uh, building that team culture up outside of the game because I think that that's what a lot of teams do is where outside of, like, you know, their practice time together, a lot of them will kind of go their own separate ways and whatnot. I think that when it comes down to those crunch moments in games where it's uh, neck and neck and you have to, you know, make that big game-winning decision, that trust, that you build with your teammates is massively important. I think that you know building that outside of the game is is very key. I'd say last year, to be completely transparent, I don't think I'd done as good of a job as I did previously in Toronto. I think in Toronto, um, with the team we had, we had very much like a kind of brotherhood, uh, where everyone, you know, it wasn't really like a forced thing where I was like, yeah, guys, let's go do this after practice together. Let's go on a team walk. That was quite like a, a regular thing for us prior to matches the night before we'd go a big walk around Toronto uh, as a team um, and it just kind of allowed us to sort of set our like everyone get off their chest what they wanted to do the next day and like make sure everyone's aligned on the game plan and stuff like that while also being in a more kind of casual setting and Toronto if you've ever been there is like quite a lovely city to walk around especially at night so um, it just you know was a good combination for us we just kind of walked around a lot of the time uh, it got to a point where we would like we had a we had a serious issue with walking. Like we'd go out for a dinner, like an hour and a half walk away, and we'd be like, "Do you want to walk up the road?" And we'd be like, "Yep, let's walk up the road." So like, <laughs> uh, like we became walking addicts. It would it became a point where every night there was like a an hour walk, especially during like COVID times where we couldn't go into no one could go into each other's like apartments and stuff like that. Obviously, so um, a lot of it was spent just you know going on late night walks together for like an hour. So. Um, there you I go and people say gamers gamers are lazy and you guys are getting more steps in than probably most fitness fanatics never mind the the general population in that case i was preaching i was preaching the 10k steps a day <laughs> <laughs> i was preaching it um, and to be fair a lot of them were very active and and going to gym and stuff out with that some of them weren't but don't get me wrong pretty much all of them always got a good amount of steps in but uh i definitely think that's another part that some gamers really sort of don't put a big emphasis on is is like health and well-being and stuff like that and i think there are a lot more sort of people out there that are preaching the benefits of it so i think that a lot of uh, players now are starting to you know take up whatever they may feel like whether that be running you know going to the gym and weightlifting um doing something else you know so a lot of players have kind of delved more into the health and well-being side of things recently and i think that that's big for the industry to be honest because i help i think it helps prolong these players careers because like i said i quit playing when i was 24 23 so i'm 28 now so you know 23 24 to be retired as a professional was quite young and to be honest with you i wasn't in my best physical shape then in comparison to when i first started competing when i came out of school so I think that that was definitely a part to play in it in terms of my mental well-being. I, I would obviously say there's physical benefits to getting fit for when it comes to Call of Duty because obviously you're not doing anything physical, you're twiddling your thumbs. But I think the mental aspect of being uh, you know, fit is, is the most important thing for these guys. Because I think at the end of the day, if you're doing something to progress your life somewhere, your, your whole happiness isn't going to be based on the results of how your practices went that day or how your results as a 
as a team have went that day, if you're still progressing uh, as a human being, I think that you're obviously going to be in a more happy mindset. Oh, I like that. I really like that. The ability for one of your teammates or your one of your uh, players to not solely put their entire happiness on the outcome of their practice rounds or their mock yeah. games, but in other dopamine and serotonin releasing activities throughout the day and i can imagine people always talk about the endorphins you get from working out going to walk being in sunlight all these good things i can imagine like you said the psychological and mental effects of doing these things have a indirect effect on how you perform um, and manage stresses manage difficult conversations manage difficult scenarios in the games as well um i wanted to ask on that point actually the parallel between gaming and mental performance techniques um so like have you ever had to use like meditation and mindfulness and stress reducing techniques for your team or as a player personally in order to optimize your gaming performance yeah as a player i wasn't really like i said before i, I didn't really take care of myself um and that's why i you know preach a lot of these things nowadays uh, but as a coach you know our teams have always kind of like been very very into the deep breathing so uh, this was in our Toronto times one of my, my assistant coach at the time Ryan he uh, was right into Wim Hof if you know who that is um, yeah, yeah, so we, oh well there you go so um, we would do like Wim Hof breathing exercises before uh, matches uh, and we'd all kind of just lie down on the floor together <laughs> and do like a deep breathing session and that seemed to, you know, work wonders for our team, to be honest. It really calmed us down, especially going into those, like, you know, intense moments when you're playing on stage, there's a live crowd and all that thing. I think it was it's very important to be able to lower your heart rate and, and really calm yourself down. Uh, and some players even uh, done different, like, breathing techniques, like uh, four, seven, eights, where you're kind of inhaling for four seconds, holding for seven seconds, and exhaling for eight seconds. Uh, while they were on stage, in between maps, just to, again... If it was like a very intense map and they've just won it or they've just lost it, just to calm themselves down and reset. Um, but again, a lot of players try different things. I've, I've had players that have ice baths every day. Um, there's obviously a, a, like a variety of different techniques and, and stuff like that. But um, I think it's obviously on the individual to find what works for them. And I can imagine there's probably some anomalies to that rule, kind of like a John Jones in the UFC or a george best or a guys in the football who go out and party all the time sleep four hours a night eat like rubbish and then go on and still be like one of the best players on the match yeah there is there's players that i've seen that like you know there's obviously those players that are very disciplined and then there's the other players who you'll see on a game date at mcdonald's and you'll be like what are you doing and then he comes into the game and just does the best out of everyone in the entire game so don't get me wrong there's always anomalies in every sport and i'm sure that there will continue to be uh but the way I think about it is there's no disadvantage, in my opinion, to living a more healthy lifestyle. There's no disadvantage to living a less healthy lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like, maybe you're, you'd get less enjoyment out of eating healthy food, maybe. I'll give you that. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, there's no disadvantage, in my opinion, to actually just living a more healthy life. So I still think that these anomalies would form the same, if not better, if they were looking after themselves. Um, just because they're an incredible individual talent, um, I think it's going to prolong your career and all these other effects that it can potentially have. Because at the end of the day, you can only sustain that. Your body can only sustain that for a certain amount of time. And it's particularly the younger players who maybe they don't see the instant uh, result of it because 
they're still playing so good, so they're not looking after themselves as much, but they're still performing. But then eventually, after years and years and years of doing this, of you know, the, a lot of these guys have got a lot of money compared to their friends, so they might be ordering out a lot. Years and years and years is going to take a toll on your body, and it might start to have a bit of an impact on your performance. So, in my my view, you should always be looking after yourself just so you can able to, you know, sustain your career for a longer period of time. And this man practices what he preaches. I saw you in the gym today on Instagram, getting ready for this podcast. You definitely practice what you preach there, mate. Yeah, I mean, I've been really putting a big emphasis into it going into this like off-season period because, like I said, I've got a lot of downtime now. Um, obviously, we are pre- uh, like preparing for next year in terms of like roster and and all these sort of things. But outside of that, um, I'm really working on myself. I've been to the gym like 35 out the last 40 days. I'm back running again because I had a knee injury in October, so it kind of took me out of running. I was wanting to do a half marathon this year, but. I'm on my like second run back since then. I had to like go to the physio and stuff like that and work a lot on um, sort of recovering my left knee. Uh, but since then, um, like since I've started going to the gym and whatnot, my knees felt a lot better now. And I've ran uh, two times in the last week, but I'm doing a 10K in October that I'm sort of training for. And then the goal again is to try and do a, a, do a half marathon next year and then eventually progress on to doing a full marathon the year after that. Nice man, this man can do it all. When <laughs> players are <laughs> when players are playing a college duty game, uh, especially professionally, what type of like state should they be in, like mental state? Um, it's a hard question because I think there's a lot of different players who are in maybe different mental states. Um, I think that you've got the you know, sort of more calm, composed type figures, and then you've got the guys who are just full of energy and. And kind of like shouting and screaming, uh, and that's get what gets them going. I think it's probably similar in in traditional sports too, where you have the more stoic individuals in football who are, you know, just a lot more calm when it comes down to it. And then you have the more aggressive guys who maybe have a bit more about them, but they lack in certain other areas. Uh, so for me, I'd say that it's hard to say. I think there's different, you know, all sorts of different ways of thinking about it. You ever came across someone who has either used or um, applied hypnosis before? The reason I ask that is because I was speaking to uh, actually my last guest and a friend of mine who's a, a boxing coach, but he also does quite a lot of mental performance stuff. And he was talking about his son who was playing college at quite a high level um, or maybe relatively high level. And towards the end of the game or towards the end of the tournament, I can't remember the exact context, his hands were shaking and he was kind of having like some sort of like smaller tremors because of the nerves. So he put his son into like a hypnotic state, cured him of these tremors and he went on and played really well. Have you ever seen like coaches or like sports psychologists or esports psychologists use any of those kind of hypnotic tools? Uh, no, I've actually not. But I mean, it sounds interesting to be honest. And, and I'm one of those guys that is always willing to try things. Um, so like, I mean, maybe it works to be honest with you. I, I've never seen it happening in like a professional sense. But I'm not doubting it could be beneficial. Um, for me, that's <laughs> that's a part of my whole like thought process is very much. I'm always willing to try new techniques and all these sort of things. Um, some things work, some things don't. And at the end of the day, you're just going to learn every time you, you're trying something new. So, I mean, help to give me a call. <laughs> I'll try to <laughs> hypnotize one of my players and see what happens. Mate, if he does and you go off to win uh, next season, 
I need at least three percent of the commission of the the, the award. The, the reward. <laughs> if that does happen, you're gonna have to delete this podcast because I can't have any of the competition knowing about my secret. <laughs> We're gonna have to keep it on the down low so no one else is, you know, stepping up their game. Oh, I love it, man! I love it, man. When I was stalking you like a creepy ex-girlfriend and looking at all the content that I could find on you online in preparation to this podcast, I was looking at some of the marvelous and incredible stages that you've both played on and, and coached on and. From the outside in, I didn't realize how big the industry was. Can you perhaps bring to life, either by number of attendees at these events or perhaps by the size of the market, how big are these Call of Duty uh, tournaments and leagues? Yeah, um, at the Call of Duty League events, there's typically around, depending on the location and the venue, I'd say between... 5,000 to 10,000 people in attendance. Um, depends on It depends on the uh, size of the stadium and stuff like that as well, because sometimes they're in smaller stadiums, but they're completely sold out, so they probably could fit more people in, but um, it's just the nature of the location, because sometimes we're going to cities where, you know, it might be Boston or New York and all these sort of places where it's very expensive for venues, so typically they're not going to want to buy a venue that maybe they have empty seats. They would rather, ha- they would rather pay for like a smaller venue and have it completely full, you know what I mean? Um, so I think that there's, you know, obviously quite a lot of people in attendance. It's not, it's not quite going to a football game where it's, you know, obviously that is actually, for the most part, going to a football game because unless you're in the top leagues and one of the top teams, you're probably getting around 10,000 uh, to 5,000 people. So it's, it's obviously quite a considerable amount. Um, and, you know, it's people from all over as well. You have players and fans flying in from, a multitude of different locations to these different places. So in the last year we had events and the College World Championship was in uh, Las Vegas. So that was in like UNLV, which is like the Las Vegas uh, University's uh, basketball arena, which is like 20, 30,000. But I think it was it was used in half. So it wasn't like, you didn't have 30,000 people there. They had about 10 to 15,000 people there. Um, and then you had sort of smaller scale events in the year where you had Boston, and that was in like a more small arena where it was like almost like a theater type uh, venue. So obviously you've kind of got a wide variety of venues there. You've got actual sports stadiums being used where you've got theaters being used. Uh, it really depends. I think it obviously in different esports as well, you have bigger crowds than that. You have games like Counter-Strike and League of Legends and stuff like that, which maybe have crowds of like 20 to 30,000. So like Call of Duty in an esports sense is definitely not, the number one, I think that's fair to say. Uh, when you've got uh, sort of uh, areas of the world like you know Japan, South Korea, etc., who are very big into games like League of Legends, uh, whereas they're not really as big into those sort of games, um, or sorry, as big into Call of Duty, should I say, um, in those countries. So um, they've obviously got a lot more people to, to you know generate big crowds and whatnot. So uh, I think that a big thing is obviously us continue to progress on eSport. But at the end of the day, I think that we've still got a long ways to go to, to sort of be at the top alongside those ones. It's amazing, man. One question that I want to kind of tie on to that is maybe not a question or perhaps more of a reflection. I feel like your level of fame or type of fame is something that I'm somewhat jealous of. So in the kind of broader, wider domain, you would walk down the street and no one would probably typically recognize you for what you do, but in your specific field within Call of Duty or esports, people definitely know who you are. So it's nice for you to be famous 
and for your utility to be appreciated within a domain that you appreciate and are passionate about, opposed to, for example, my last guest, who was a Love Island star, who whereby people recognize him, but they don't know why they appreciate him or they don't know why they like him. They just do because he's famous. And I feel like I would rather have your type of fame, which is like high level of fame, but in a niche field. So for me, as a podcast host, I would love to be known as a really great podcaster to those who listen to podcasts, opposed to being like, again, a Love Island star. Um, so how have you kind of internalized and dealt with um, the sense of community and fandom and fame uh, through esports? Um, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. It's very, you know, niche. So like, I'll get, I've, I've been noticed quite a few times in Glasgow, don't get me wrong, but um, it's more so like at events and stuff like that. You have, you know, fans coming up to you asking you to do signatures, selfies, all those sort of things. And that happens quite a lot at events. Um, but out in Glasgow, even like recently, I went out to Wonder Bar in Glasgow um, and like two or three different uh, guys came up to me like, are you Marky B? Um, which is funny. Um, so like, I definitely think that there's been a bunch of that in in Scotland and I think it's still definitely big, but it's not like I'm walking down the street getting people like pulling on to me, like, get, get off me. Girls but, uh, taking their bras off and throwing them yeah, at you. Yeah, and... no, that's not <laughs> happening. That's definitely not happening. Um, but it, it has happened every now and then. I'd say maybe 10 times uh, in the last oh. couple of years, but it's not it's not that's a whole lot. Like class. I said, you've got to be really into the, the actual niche, you said. Um, so similarly recently my sister who's three or four yeah three years younger than me she finds my podcast so lame mate she cringes every time she sees me post about it or talk about it never listened to a single episode but a couple of weeks ago we're at a stand-up comedy gig and i do stand-up comedy in my spare time i do stand-up comedy in my spare time and i post about it on my my stories on my, my podcast account and i was at a stand-up comedy gig at the o2 and the interval came on it was like a sold out show it was called have a word podcast live i was actually a live podcast show but it's a comedy podcast and halfway through at the interval this kid or not kid like 21 year old turned over the seat and said oh by the way are you uh david mcintosh i listen to your podcast and his dad goes yeah he's never got it off the tv and like we exchanged a few like words and he turned back around and for the first time in the three years i've been running this podcast my sister just gave me a fist bump and was like yeah that's pretty awesome <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely pretty cool if your family get to experience it. I had it happen, um, hopefully this doesn't offend anyone, but I'm a Celtic fan. Um, and I've had it happen quite a few times at Celtic games. I, I was having one time in particular with my dad uh, where we're walking up and uh, two boys stopped me and were like, are you Marky B? And I think like, when your family around, it's a bit more cool. Because uh, they're yeah, like, especially. you're a big deal. <laughs> Whereas... I mean, it's it's cool. It's cool in general. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's it's even better when your family are about because then they actually see you, like you know, like the amount of actual people that know about it when it's happening yeah, and randomly the, and on the street. And the impact that you've had, like, yeah, you've got these big checks coming through the door from winning tournaments and coaching, um, but that's just like numbers on a screen. But the fact that a young kid is looking up to you as like somewhat of an idol or someone whose content they consume or someone who they watch play live or coach live and they have a little bit of that motivation instilled in them because you're a relatable role model again the exact reason i started this podcast was to create an online directory of role models and roadmaps like that there's something that's so much richer than any any sort of check or money uh that that, that could be provided through competition like that sentimental testimony in real life there's nothing that can beat that at all no 100 percent 
and you you hit the nail on the head there as well in terms of like I think that's a big thought process of mine going into this off season is that I've even had a few DMs. Um, that's why I've been putting a big emphasis on like you know health and well being. I mean, I've I always have, but I think I've I've really going all in on it right now. Um, and I think that that's just due to I want to set good examples for not only fans but like you know the other players and and being able to be a coach that can like sh- show players that like hey I'm doing this like uh, rather than telling them to do things that I'm not actually doing myself. I think that that's a lot easier to get some buy-in off people if you're actually committing to the cause rather than just do this, do this, this will make you better. Rather than actually, I've got practicing what I preach, like you said. I love it, man. We're wrapping up the podcast now towards the end, but I want to ask you one final question, and it's probably a question that you didn't expect me to ask, and it's very left field. Given that you rose to the ranks of online gaming, online competitions, what's the best slagging that you've ever got whilst played online? Oh, I think the vast majority of the best ones I really couldn't say. They're probably way <laughs> too offensive. Um, oh my God. There's, there's some ones out, out there. Out. If, if, if you go on YouTube, you can watch them. Uh, but there's one in particular, an event, uh, not online. Um, if you type in Marky B and Mad Cat, go at it on YouTube. You'll be able to see that. Um, he's insulting my size. <laughs> there's there's a lot there's a lot of strange there's a lot of strange back and forth going on um but yeah there's definitely been quite a few different ones you need to tell me what it is come on <laughs> this podcast was, not censored he, okay well he was i talk about penis size um <laughs> so yeah um well we should wrap this podcast <laughs> yeah yeah and i ended up coming back and winning when we were when we were losing and i just stood up and just started mumbling a bunch of no- nonsense to be honest with you I don't even know what I was saying. I can't even remember what I said at this point. Uh, it was just, it was pure comedy gold. Uh, there's some guy in the crowd who's mimicking me doing this. Uh, but funnily enough, the guy in the video, I'm actually really good friends with now. Like, actually, you know, extremely good friends with now. Uh, so it's funny how the world works, really. When you have those rivalries and then you kind of end up going full circle and then you're friends. I mean, I've really enjoyed this podcast. I've learned so much. I've busted so many myths I had about the esports and gaming industry. Um, like I said, I didn't know what I didn't know when I came out of this podcast, understanding how big the industry is, how technical the game plans are and the team makeups are, and how important well-being and mental performance is for all this stuff, and that you are truly one of the big dicks of Call of Duty, mate. Uh, what a podcast. I really enjoyed this, man. Thank you for coming along. If I were to signpost the listeners to any of the work that you do or perhaps your your team, what's the best place for them to interact with you? Um, so do well. First of all, that was the best outro I've ever heard. And uh, second of all, I think that you can go and check out, obviously, on Twitter, we've used primarily for like Call of Duty Esports, I'd say. So LA Gorillas on Twitter, if you want to find uh, my team's social media account. It'll be the same across YouTube, TikTok, and all that stuff. Uh, same thing with Instagram. And for my own own, own self, you can find me on Marky B. Uh, so pretty simple. Um, M-A-R-K-Y-B on uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Development by David with the amazing Mark Bracelet. If you love this episode, share it in a group chat. Give it a like, thumbs up, comment wherever you're listening to this. Leave a wee review. 
it means the world. Stick around for the next one and send me your thoughts. You've been amazing. This has been Mark Braceland. I've been developed by David. And thank you for our sponsors, Two Bird Strengths and M23 Mental Performance for sponsoring this episode. See you beautiful people in the next.